0: All right. Morning, everyone. I guess if nobody else comes up, then that's my turn, right? Well, my name's Scott Lapierre. I'm a pastor in southwest Washington. I'm a father of nine. I don't know if they're putting up a photo of my family, but uh, my oldest is 15 down to about one and a half, and I'm here with my, my son Johnny. Normally, I go to, oh, there we go. So that's my family there, my beautiful wife in the upper left, and then the the son on the bottom left that i have my left hand on his shoulder that's johnny he's with he's here with me in oklahoma and i could tell you all the other names but you wouldn't remember all those but anyway so yeah that's uh, the children God's blessed us with and my wife turned 40 uh, 41 a couple months ago so she's about 17 or 18 years older than me i'll just <laughs> joke so we'll see if the lord bless us with more children and Uh, so I feel thankful for all of them, and I feel very thankful to be here. We've had a wonderful trip. So far, it's my first time ever to Oklahoma, and uh, so Pastor Alan, the other elders, Mike, thank you all very much for the wonderful time uh, you've given us so far and just for the privilege of speaking at this pulpit. And can I just say, I was sitting here just feeling incredibly thankful for this church, and I mean that because I was reflecting, and I hope you can be thankful as well because it's somewhat rare that you're in a church that during the worship service has prayer has scripture reading, has children, and has a congregation that's singing, and there are many churches that lack many of those things, if not all of them, and so I believe it's a, it's a credit to God's graciousness toward you that I hope you, you don't take for granted. Have you heard that, that churches are no longer singing? They come and they, they sit back for a concert with a band up front that plays typically, I'd say, probably too loudly, and so it was great this morning to hear all of your voices singing. So why don't you go and open your Bibles to James chapter 1, The title this morning's sermon is, Why Does God Test Us? Augustine said that trials come to prove us and improve us. Trials come to prove us and improve us. He's referring to trials testing us or testing our faith, and then the improving is trials maturing us. We're not going to be focusing so much this morning on trials maturing us, but we are going to be talking about trials testing us or proving our faith. If you look at James 1-2 with me, probably familiar verses to all of you. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Very important truth contained here in these verses that I want to make sure we notice. James mentions trials in verse 2, and then in verse 3, he tells us what trials do. And what's that? Okay, we're going to need to do a little better than that this morning. (laughs) What does he say trials do? Yes, they test us. They test our faith exactly. This brings us to lesson one on your inserts. Lesson one right here. And by the way, I think it's important for families to gather around the Word during the week, and that responsibility largely rests on Father's shoulders. And so at our church we provide a family worship guide for families, and this is kind of like that. These discussion questions, I hope, might be a supplement to fathers and the spiritual leadership over their home to go home and then to go through these discussion questions as their family, and I can almost guarantee you that if you do, then you're going to increase the likelihood that your children are more attentive during the worship service, uh, during the sermon, so that they have something to share during that time. So we'll go through the lessons, but then I do hope that these discussion questions might be a blessing to you during the week uh, as you gather together as a family around God's word. So lesson one on your inserts, God tests us to prove our faith. The New Testament, written primarily in Greek, and I just want to briefly introduce two Greek words to you. As I read the definitions, consider how similar they are. The first Greek word for trials in James 1-2 is pyrosmos, pyrosmos, and it means a trial proving adversity, affliction, trouble sent by God, and serving to test or prove one's character or faith. The second Greek word is the Greek word for testing in James 1.3, and it's dokemion, and it mo- means the proving that by which something is tried or proved a test. Now, if you're listening carefully to those two definitions, you might have noticed that they sound very similar. So let me ask you this. Why would the definitions for the words trials and tests sound so similar? Because trials are what? And tests are trials. Trials are tests, and tests are trials. And that's why the definition for these Greek words for trials and tests are so similar James 1, 2 and James 1, 3 basically say this, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the trying of your faith, or perhaps another way to say it, count it all joy when you fall into various tests, knowing the testing of your faith. The Greek word for testing, it's dochemion. It only occurs one other place in scripture, and that's 1 Peter 1, 7. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there now, we won't come back to James This is the only other place that that Greek word for testing, dochemion, occurs. So it's in James 1, and then it's here in 1 Peter 1. So just turn a few chapters to the right. Hebrews, James, and then Peter. So in 1 Peter 1, as I read these verses, just consider how similar they are to what we just read in James 1. We'll start at verse 6. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice... Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And that word for trials again it's Pyrus Moss, the same word in James 1 2. So James says to count it all joy when you fall into various trials, and then Peter says that we can greatly rejoice when we've been grieved by various trials. Now, if you're anything like me, when you experience trials, joy is typically the last thing you feel, right? But The verses do not tell us to feel or experience joy. We're told to count the trials as joy. Or in other words, the verse wouldn't make sense if it said feel joy because we don't feel joy, but it says to count them as joy because of what God is doing through them. And so we're gonna be talking about that for the rest of the sermon, one of the wonderful things that God does through trials. Then in verse seven, here it is, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that word for genuineness, that's the word dokemion. That's the same word that we just saw back in James 1 for testing. And these are the only two places that occur. So James says that trials test our faith, dokemion, and Peter says trials reveal the genuineness, again, dokemion, of our faith. That Greek word for dochemion, it's interesting, it was actually used for coins to determine whether those coins were genuine or corrupt, to reveal whether those coins were valuable or worthless. So can you see why it is so fitting for that same Greek word that's used for coins to be used for our faith? To tell whether our faith is what? genuine or corrupt, valuable or worthless. In verse 7, notice it says that the genuine, it doesn't say the genuineness of our faith is precious like gold. It doesn't say the genuineness of our faith is precious like gold. What does it say? The genuineness of our faith is much more precious than gold. Why would scripture describe our faith having such value? Because we're saved by grace through, we're oh, gonna do that one more time. Because we're saved by grace through faith. faith. Without faith, we have no salvation. It is actually our faith that becomes our righteousness. Is that our we we put our faith in Christ, and then His righteousness is imputed to us. Romans four three. Looking back to that famous verse in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 3, 4, 3. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and his faith was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. His faith became Christ's righteousness in him. And so there's nothing more precious than our faith, which is why it says that our faith is more precious even than gold. Now, I don't know a lot about jewelry, My wife has never been into expensive jewelry. It's one of the reasons I married her. (laughs) That's not true. But I do know that gold is called a precious metal. And I don't mean it's called a precious metal in Scripture. I mean, it's called a precious metal in the world, along with other precious metals such as silver, platinum, or palladium. Now, what do they do with precious metals to determine whether they're really precious metals? What do they do with them? They test them. They test them. They try them. Someone might have said by fire. You have to prove how valuable or precious these metals are or aren't. You have to prove whether they're genuine or false. You can imagine someone who thinks he's holding gold, and this has happened through history. Someone thought they're holding gold, and they found out they're only holding what? What's it called? Does anyone know? Pyrite or fool's gold. That's right. Or you imagine some woman who thinks that her husband bought her this expensive diamond ring and she brings it in to have it tested, and, and it's, it's what? Cubic zirconia, right? Her husband got it at the Dollar Tree. And so, <laughs> so you have to get this tested, tested to determine the value or the worth of this metal. Now think about this for a moment. If our faith is everything, if our faith is even more precious than the most precious metal, then what can we be sure of? That God's going to test it. God is going to test that faith to determine the genuineness of it. So we must expect that and even welcome it in our Christian lives that our faith would be tested to prove that it's valuable versus worthless. Look again at the end of verse 6. That's what it says. You've been grieved by various trials. Then verse 7 so that the genuineness of your faith may be found or proved. Now, how's God going to test or prove our faith? He's not going to test it or prove it like we do with precious metals, right? He's not going to give it the scratch test. He's not going to pour acid on it. But listen to this, because we're told, Isaiah 48, verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, and then he says, but not as silver. I've refined you, but not as a precious metal, instead I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. So he's going to use trials. Our faith isn't like some cold dead metal that can be that can be tested the way the world tests metals. He's going to subject it to trials to reveal whether it's genuine. Tom Wells said, you know why men test gold, why they put it in the fire. They know that if it is gold, fire will not hurt it. Men do not seek to destroy gold with fire. They do not seek to harm it in any way. Instead, they strive to prove beyond all doubt that it is in fact gold. And that is what God is doing when he applies trials to our faith. He seeks to show that we are true Christians. And this brings us to lesson two. Lesson two, trials prove the genuineness of our faith, part two, or part one, excuse me, to us. Trials test and prove the genuineness of our faith to us. Warren Wiersbe said, in the school of faith, we must have occasional tests or we will never know where we are spiritually. Now, we all want to know that we have genuine saving faith. We know from our Lord's words, particularly in Matthew 7, that many people are deceived about their salvation, right? There are people who will stand before the Lord someday and what words will they hear? Words they did not expect. Depart from me, I never knew you. They were expecting to hear something different. You can sense the shock or the surprise in those verses. It's not Muslims. It is not Hindus that are in view there. It it is individuals who thought they were disciples of Christ who will then be cast out from his presence. Some of the most terrifying and sobering verses in all of scripture that should cause all of us to do what Paul said and examine our faith. Examine whether it's genuine. And one of the ways is revealed in James 2, if we'd continued further, works, does our faith produce works? Works don't save us, but works are the evidence of a saving faith. And then one of the other evidences of faith is the survival of trials. The issue with trials is not that you survive trials. Many martyrs, every martyr did not survive a trial to be a martyr. The question is never whether we survive a trial. The question is always whether what survives a trial? Our faith. That's the issue at hand. So when we go through a trial, let's say someone has cancer. Of course, we pray for them. There were individuals in the, in the prayer. And that was another b- blessing to hear such a, such a lengthy, wonderful pastoral prayer this morning, lifting up individuals. I don't remember if someone in that list had cancer, but I know that there were some health issues and we desire to see God heal these people and, ex- and extend their lives. But if he doesn't, the question is never whether their life survived the trial. The question is whether their faith survived the trial none of us like trials but one of the blessings from them is they can give us confidence in our faith when our faith has survived that trial we can be confident in it in the language of first peter 1 7 the genuineness of our faith has been proved george Mueller said the only way to learn strong faith is to endure great trials george Mueller said the only way to learn strong faith is to endure great trials. trials I have learned my faith by standing firm amid severe testing. So he meant he learned to trust his faith or be confident in his faith because of what it had withstood. And this is one of the reasons we should welcome trials. They give us opportunities to have our faith tested, to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. R.C.H. Linsky said, if you have true faith, you ought to be glad to have it tested and proved to be genuine. If I have genuine gold coins, I shall welcome any test to which they may be subjected. Just a few friends of ours, and I'm sure you can think of some believers yourselves who have gone through trials. A woman learned that she had ALS. At the time that I share this with you, she's already passed away, but she was praising God until the moment she died. Another friend learned she had leukemia. She was recently sent home by the doctors who could no longer do anything for her. Her and her husband have continued to praise God and tell us how blessed they are. A pastor friend of mine in Washington, he lost his son in a tragic accident. Uh, he was, his son was thrown from a horse and trampled. It was his only I think he had eight or nine children. It was his only son, I believe after uh, maybe God has, I believe God's given him another son since then, but he had a son followed by seven daughters and he lost his his firstborn son, and they said, they told us that they were going to spend Thanksgiving talking about how much they have to be thankful for. Now, when I see people going through trials like this who continue to praise God, it is evidence of the sincerity or genuineness of their faith. You can imagine how these trials demonstrated not just the genuineness of their faith to them, but to me and to the others in their lives. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. Trials prove the genuineness of our faith to others. Trials prove the genuineness of our faith, part two, to others. We have the young mother in our church She has three children. She was in her late 20s when she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. I never doubted her salvation, but to see the way that her and her husband, close friends of ours, have borne up under this trial has made incredibly evident to all of us uh, the great faith that her and her husband have. Thomas Kempis said, adversities do not make a man frail. They show what sort of man he is. Trials do not make us frail. They show what sort of people we are. In the parable of the soils, Jesus taught that trials prove our faith. I'll share a few of those verses. If you'd like, you can look in Matthew thirteen five, or you can just listen to me, read these verses. So you're familiar with this parable, I suspect. The seed represents the word of God. The soils represent different hearts. And Jesus said, Matthew thirteen five, some of the seed fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it did not have much earth. Stony places refers to shallow soil, that was resting on top of a layer of bedrock. So there's not much depth of earth to it. And so what's not going to go down deep? Roots. This represents people with shallow faith or no roots to their faith. And guess what reveals that their faith is not genuine? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I'll tell you what Jesus said. Matthew thirteen six. When the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. When you have soils or hearts that receive the seed... Or God's word, but there's no root, it's not going to last, it withers away. To give you an idea what this looks like in the church, have you met people who have seemed to receive God's word very enthusiastically? They seem excited about their new faith. They spring up quickly to maintain the imagery from the parable, but they don't have roots, the faith doesn't go down deep, it's not genuine. And what is it that reveals the insincerity of their faith? It's trials, which is what Jesus said, Matthew 13, 20, as he explains this parable to the disciples, he who received the seed on stony places, it is the person who hears the word of God immediately receives it with joy. So if you don't know the rest of the parable, everything sounds great at this point. This is not someone who's rejecting God's word. I was sitting sitting in one of the uh, Sunday schools this morning listening to someone teach the gospel of Mark and there were people who would reject. They could not see. They could not hear. That's not what's in view here. Here we're talking about people who received God's word joyfully. Everything looks good. But then Jesus said, Matthew thirteen twenty one. he has no root. There's no depth in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or trials or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And so it was trials that proved the insincerity of the faith. And sadly, we've all seen people like this. They come to church, they're very excited. I've been a pastoring 17 years now, and sadly, I cannot tell you how many times people have come to church or to Bible studies, they looked incredibly enthusiastic, but then a trial comes along, and it's all over for them. Now, supposedly, someone gets saved, and let's hope that they are and everyone's excited, and people around them are talking. They're so on fire for God. That's language that we hear. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. But I can tell you trials are going to reveal whether they're really on fire for God or not. And so when everyone's talking about how excited they are about this new person to the church, in my mind I'm thinking, let's give it some time, and let's watch. Let's see them go through something difficult and how they come out the other side. The reality of their faith or the reality of their lack of faith is exposed. And then sadly, many times they revert back to the lives they lived before that seed fell on their hearts. People come up to me and they say, hey, you know, well, what what happened to so-and-so? We saw him, he's at prayer, he's at Sunday school, he's at worship, he's coming to evening service, he's going to every single Bible study and home fellowship he can attend, you know, and then I haven't seen him. Over the last few weeks, or what, what's happened to him? And then someone says, Well, th- this happened. He started going through this difficult situation and, and he's not coming to church anymore. So you could say this Christians will persevere and non Christians won't. This is where we get the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's not that people get saved and then lose their salvation, it's that people looked saved. But trials revealed that they were never saved. One of the key verses about this is 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now what this verse is saying is that until they went out, they looked like they were of us or they looked like they were Christians. It was only them going out that, they re- that revealed that they were not believers. In Revelation, you have an entire church, and I'm using the word loose. I wouldn't even call it a church, except that Jesus calls it a church. It's Sardis. that looked like Christians. They looked alive, but spiritually they were dead. Re- Revelation 3, one, Jesus says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you were dead. What does Jesus mean when he says, I know that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. He means they were physically alive, but spiritually dead. But what does it mean that they had a name? It means they were the happening church. Maybe they were the mega church in the area. They were the church that had all the great, exciting, fun, wonderful things happen that had no real spiritual or eternal benefit. But everyone can look and say, well, they were incredibly active there and they were doing so many fun, wonderful things. So they had a name or they had a reputation that they were a great church the world looked at them and saw them that way. Christ looked at them and said, you're dead. Can you imagine that? A church that everyone thinks is happening and thriving, because it is physically, and Christ looks at that same church and says that they're dead. Well, how are they dead? They're clearly not dead physically. They're dead spiritually. They're unregenerate. They're filled with a whole bunch of busy, active, religious, unregenerate people. Listen to these verses from David, Psalm 26.2. He says, examine me, O Lord, prove me, try my mind and heart. Psalm 139.23, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, see if there is any wicked way in me. So David asked God to prove his faith. He asked God to test him with trials. He wanted to know the condition of his mind and heart. But interestingly, if you were listening, David wanted someone else to know condition of his mind and heart and that is god and this brings us to lesson two part three trials prove the genuineness of our faith to god trials prove the genuineness of our faith to us to others and to god probably most importantly to god when we are on the hilltops who doesn't look spiritual You know, it always grieves me that after the big game, they put the microphone in the face of the person who won. And of course, that person has great things to say about God. They need to take the microphone, and they need to put it in the face of the Christian who just lost the game, (laughs) who continues to praise God, right? John Fossett said, when we're in the midst of prosperity, it is difficult to know whether we have a love for God or... Listen to this. When we are in the midst of difficulty... We cannot know if we have a love for God or only for his blessings. It's in the midst of trials that our faith is put to the test. You're in the book of Job Sunday morning, so this should be familiar. In fact, I hope this might supplement some of the wonderful teaching Pastor Allen's been providing. Do you know who understood better than anyone that trials reveal the genuineness of faith? Satan. Satan. What did Satan claim? Job only loves you and serves you because you have been so good to him. But when you pour out suffering on him, he's going to do what? He's going to curse you, which is to say the insincerity of his faith will be revealed. Satan said when you allow trials to be poured out on him, it will be revealed that his faith is insincere. Now, Satan was wrong. This is why he's the accuser, Job one nine, Satan said, does, does Job fear you for nothing? You've made a hedge around him, around his household, around all he has. you've blessed the work of his hands. The possessions have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand, touch him, touch all he has, and surely he'll curse you to your face. When Job, when the sincerity or genuineness of Job's faith was shown, Satan goes further in the next chapter and says, stretch out your, because you just haven't touched him physically. You've done all these things to him, but you haven't, He hasn't had to physically suffer. You stretch out his hand, your hand, and you touch his bone and flesh, he'll surely curse you to his face. Or to your face, excuse me. So Satan said, because he knew that trials reveal the genuineness of faith. He was wrong about Job's faith. Job's faith was genuine, but he was right that trials do typically reveal whether faith is genuine. They tempt us to curse God. And when we don't, We're proving the genuineness of our faith and and have you ever wondered why Uh, who who was able to live in job's life his wife why was his wife able to live she was satan's servant she told she told you kind of look and you're like he's lost his children he's lost all of his servants he's lost his animals he's lost his buildings and his wife remains and then she opens her mouth and says curse god and die and you can see why satan let her live But even when his own wife was telling him to curse God, it says that he never sinned with his lips. And this is why God tests people with trials, to know them. We see him do it throughout the Old and New Testaments. Very often when it mentions God testing his people, there is an accompanying statement, often in the exact same verse, that he's doing so to know them. I'll give you a few examples. Four examples, but there are plenty of others I could give you. Before Israel goes into the Promised Land, Moses can't go with them. Deuteronomy contains Moses's three farewell speeches to the nation that he has loved and led for 40 years, and he recaps their history to them. And in chapter 8 he talks about the 40 years in the wilderness that it was a time of testing. And listen to what Moses said is the reason God tested them. Deuteronomy 8:2. You shall remember the Lord your God who led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. So God tests us to know what's in our heart. And it's not to say that he doesn't know. He's omniscient. It isn't to say that he needs to learn. It has more the idea of revealing or proving what is in our hearts. Fast forward to Israel going into the promised land. What did God do with the enemies in Canaan? He allowed them to remain. He left them. Well, why is that? So they would test Israel so that God could know Israel. Judges 3, 4, the Canaanites were left that God might test Israel to know whether they would obey his commandments. There's an interesting situation with Hezekiah, generally regarded as one of the greatest kings over Judah, one of the greatest kings in the Old Testament. These messengers from Babylon come to visit him. Babylon was the superpower of the day and it was a low point in Hezekiah's life. He became concerned with pleasing man. He wanted to uh, look good to, to, the, to this superpower. And so he shows off the storehouses, all of his wealth to them. And then afterward, Isaiah rebuked him for it. And listen to what Isaiah said. Second Chronicles 32, 31, regarding the ambassadors from Babylon, God withdrew from you, from Hezekiah, in order to test you, in order to know all that was in your heart. God tests Israel in the wilderness because he wants to know or prove what's in their hearts. He tests Israel in the promised land to know or prove whether they would obey him. And God tested Hezekiah to know or to prove what was in his heart. And God tests us because he wants to know or prove what's in our hearts. And so one of the blessings of persevering through trials is they are incredible opportunities. If you take nothing else away from this this morning, I pray that you can look at every trial as a wonderful opportunity to prove your love to Christ, to demonstrate the sincerity of your faith to him. Because who can't praise Christ when everything's going well? Who can't look like a Christian when they're being blessed and God's gifts are being poured out on them? And I'm as thankful for God's blessings and gifts as anyone else, but it's the trials that allow us to reveal how committed we are. Now, after listening to something like this, you might start to wonder, well, you know, Pastor Scott, I've, w- I've went through trials and I haven't handled them perfectly. Maybe you're even thinking of trials. Maybe you even feel like you're in a trial and you haven't responded as well as you would like. You're asking, does this mean I have to be perfect during trials? Does perseverance mean perfection? Scripture gives us an example of someone who answers this for us. Turn to James 5 verse 11. Continuing to discuss Job, James five eleven, and this is probably the premier verse revealing the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. James five eleven. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. And this means endure trials. He says, "You've heard of the perseverance or endurance, endurance and perseverance, and patience can be used interchangeably. You've heard of the perseverance or endurance of Job, and seen the end intended by the Lord." that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, we're talking about whether we need to persevere through trials and I just took you to Job. And that's discouraging. You're saying, does this mean that I have to be as great as Job? Does this mean that I must persevere like he persevered? Pastor Scott, you just took us to one of the greatest men in scripture. Are you telling us that we must look like him to believe that we have persevered through trials? The truth is, I think Job is chosen as the example of a persevering saint, and it should be very encouraging to us because Job was not perfect when he was persevering. And this brings us to lesson three. Perseverance doesn't mean perfection. Perseverance doesn't mean perfection. If you want to go ahead and turn to the book of Job, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. And while you turn, if you just let this wash over you, remember in James 1, I said we were going to focus on trials proving us versus improving us. But if you're familiar with those verses, you know trials mature us. Or trials bring us closer to perfection. Scripturally speaking, perfect, when the word perfect is used, it doesn't mean free from error. It means mature. Well, if trials are going to be perfecting us or maturing us or bringing us closer to perfection, then what does that mean? It means we're not already perfect. We wouldn't need trials to perfect us if we were already perfect. And so what that means is when we go through trials, we're not going to go through them perfectly. James 5.11 says, You've heard of the perseverance of Job, The word for perseverance, it's hoopamone. It's the same word for patience in James 1 when it says the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work. So basically James 5.11 is saying you've heard of the patience of Job. That's actually how it's translated in some Bibles. Now let me ask you this. Did Job seem patient during his trials? Did he? Was he the picture of perfection and patience and endurance? Did Job sit there quietly, calmly, praising God for his trials? Did Job say, you know what? Someday there's a man named James who's going to write a book of the Bible and he's going to mention me. He's going to talk about counting it all joy when we fall into trials and I'm experiencing the worst trials imaginable, but I cannot tell you all the joy I am counting right now. Did Job do that? I want to encourage you by showing you how imperfect Job was even though he is still the persevering saint. So Job 9.23, as we read these verses, ask yourselves, does Job look patient? Does he look like he's persevering? Job 9.23, if the scourge or the disease slays suddenly, he, this is God, laughs at the plight of the innocent, that is a terrible criticism of God that you just read. He accused God of laughing at people, innocent people, When they suffer, turn to Job 21, verse 4. So first, Job said that God laughs at the plight of the innocent. And now he says, as for me, is my complaint against man? And you would expect it to be against man. He's dealing with these three friends and a fourth will show up you'd expect his complaint to be with those friends. But his question's rhetorical. He's saying, my complaint is not with man. My complaint is with whom? With God. Now, this chapter, it's really one long criticism of God for allowing the wicked to prosper. I'll show you just a few of the verses. Look at verse 9. The houses of the wicked are safe from fear, neither is the rod, which refers to the rod of God's punishment or justice, upon them. So he says the wicked are safe from judgment. God never punishes them. Verse 17, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. So he says the wicked never have their lives brought to an early end. God never introduces trouble or sorrow to them. It's all about the prosperity of the wicked. Turn to chapter 24 verse 12 to see another terrible criticism. He says, "The dying groan in the city; the souls of the wounded cry out." Yet God does not charge them. He means the ones responsible with wrong. So he accuses God of being unconcerned when the godly suffer and when the wicked prosper. He's Job says that God is unjust because he doesn't punish those who inflict the suffering. On top of Job's accusations, there are times that he was very self-righteous. Turn to chapter 31. This is Job's final speech to his friends, and it truly oozes with pride. His words are about his goodness and his innocence. We'll look at the last few verses, starting at verse 35. Job 31, 35, he says, "'Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark, or my signature,' oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Now, in most translations, Job said, let the Almighty answer me. He feels so entitled to hear from God regarding what he suffered because he said, said, I'll sign my name on this. I'll write it down and put my signature there. I want an audience with God. He needs to tell me why I'm suffering because I should not be going through this because I've been so good. Verse 36, surely I would carry it On any accusation God has on my shoulder, I would bind it on me like a crown. And so He says the accusations that could be brought against Him were so insignificant that He would gladly wear them on His shoulder or wear them like a crown for all to see, like a like a uh, prince or something. That's what He says in the next verse. He's been so righteous. He says in verse 37, I declare to Him the number of my steps, like a prince, I would approach Him. So He says, "I'll, I'll tell God everything. I've got nothing to hide. I've been that good. Every step I've taken can be shared with him because he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. He says, I'll approach God the way that a prince approaches a king. Verse 38, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So he's so innocent. He says, not only can people not accuse me of anything, my own land can't even accuse me of mistreating it. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I notice with this. If there's anyone in all of human history that looks to me like he deserved an explanation for the trials he's experiencing, it is Job. Because we even have who describing Job as an incredibly righteous man. I mean, it would be one thing if another godly person spoke well of Job, right? What if you plucked up what if you could find a godly person in scripture who speaks well of Job? You'd say, okay, well, that's, that's wonderful but he's got David or Abraham or Noah speaking. But you've got God himself talking about how righteous Job is. And God didn't need to explain himself to him. And so here's my point. If God doesn't need to explain himself to Job, he doesn't need to explain himself to you or to me. Now, there are people who have suffered terribly and I'm not minimizing it. But the wrong response from them is when they say something like, you know, I'm going to stand before God someday and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to tell him what I think about what he's done or what he's taken from me. I remember this woman it was incredibly heartbreaking. She lost a child. And she says, when I stand before the Lord someday and I'm going to put my finger in his face and I'm going to tell him what I think about him taking my son from me. No, she's not. Job thought he wanted an audience until he got one, right? Job's pride was gone the moment God showed up and started assaulting him with all these. He could not get further under the ground. Now look at chapter 32. Three men, these three men, Job's friends, they answered, they ceased answering Job. Excuse me. They stopped talking to him because, notice this, He was righteous in his own eyes. Even they recognized how righteous he was. Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18, 9. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Job is starting to look dangerously close to being like those Pharisees that Jesus preached this parable to address. And then in Job 32 to 37, Elihu speaks, and then God starts speaking, or I should say questioning. God questions Job in 38 and 39, and then Job speaks again in chapter 40. Turn to chapter 40. Look at verse 3. Job is a different man now, after having the audience with God that he wanted. He says, behold, I am vile. Do you notice the change there within just a few? What did he say previously in chapter 31? He's righteous in his own eyes. And now in his own eyes, he's what? Vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth once I've spoken, but I will not answer yes twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job basically said, I should have kept my mouth shut. I wanted to go to court with the Lord. I thought that I would win. Definitely did not go the way that he thought it would. And I have to wonder how many people like Job wish they could have their day in court with God thinking like him that they can bring their accusation against god for what they've experienced or how they've been treated but if god didn't owe job an apology or even an explanation and that's one of the points of the irony of the book of job or the irony of the book of suffering is that it gives us no explanation we get to see behind the curtains in job one and two the discussion between god and Satan, but that's really all we get do you do you know why job suffered all he did i don't it's not recorded for us we just see the conversation that happened between God and Satan, but we don't know. He definitely didn't know anything, and we're not told why God allowed it. So God questions Job again that continues to the rest of chapter 40, all chapter 41, and in chapter 42 Job speaks again. In Job 42 verse 1, the Lord answered or Job answered the Lord. He said, "I know you can do everything. No purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I uttered what I didn't understand, again he feels like he spoke when he should have remained silent." I spoke about things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse four, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. And then Job says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself. Previously, he felt vile and now he hates himself and he repents in dust and ashes. And that is a beautiful word there in verse six. It's almost become a bad word in some churches, but what does it say that Job did? He repented. He repented. The fact is that God loved Job enough to bring him to this point where the pride and self-righteousness was removed. And to tie all this together, trials can have this same sanctifying effect on us, of bringing us to those positions of humility or repentance that are for our good. Someone was just saying that yesterday about a, I was having lunch with some, some couple's and I think we were there almost three, four hours together, and one of the gentlemen was speaking, and he pointed out that trials introduce a humility to us that's lacking without them. So here's a question I want to ask you again. James 5.11, You have heard of the perseverance or the patience of Job, but did Job sound patient? Did he seem like he was persevering, or at least did he seem like he was persevering perfectly? No, so be encouraged by Job being the example of a persevering saint for us. He sounded impatient. He sounded angry. He sounded critical of God. He sounded prideful. He struggled. He questioned. So how can it say then that he was patient, or how can it say then that he persevered? And the answer is this. He persevered the exact same way that everyone perseveres. His faith in God was maintained. He didn't understand. He was confused and he was upset, but he continued to trust. If your faith survives the trial, even if you're not perfect during the trial, you are a persevering saint. The genuineness of your faith is proved. Job persevered through trials the same way all of us persevere through trials. He kept his faith in God twice Satan said Job would curse God. Satan thought he would not persevere. His wonderful wife told him to curse God. She tried to get him not to persevere. But Job 2.10 says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 13.15, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. So Job said this, No matter what happens, no matter how difficult this becomes, no matter how confused I am or upset, I will continue to trust God. I will continue to have faith in him. And that's what it means to be a persevering saint. Now, let me conclude with two points that we learned from Job. First, I'm definitely not looking at Job to permit or perhaps even encourage any disrespect toward God. We did not look at those passages of criticisms to encourage you to feel the liberty or license to criticize God when you're struggling. And in fact, we see that what did Job do as a result of, of his criticisms and accusation, he repented. And so one thing we can learn from Job is that if we criticize, if we accuse, we should repent like he did. And second, we learn from Job's example that being a persevering saint does not mean being a perfect saint. It's been a privilege to be able to share God's word with you. If you have any questions or I could pray for you in any way, if you're going through something in your life, I would consider it a privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you after the service. Father, I thank you so much for your word, the truth that it contains for us. And we come before you even desiring to thank you for trials because of the wonderful work that they do in our lives. Obviously not an easy thing to do counting counting trials as joy because of what we're suffering or what we're experiencing but please help us to lift our eyes off ourselves to lift our eyes to heaven to trust that you're doing something good in our lives through the suffering that we're experiencing i do thank you that trials are never wasted that they're not meaningless that they're never introduced into our lives arbitrarily or randomly but that you're sovereign that any anything that ever reaches us has first passed through your throne We thank you that you're using trials to prove the genuineness of our faith to others, to us, and most importantly to you. And thank you that you're using trials to humble us at times to bring us to repentance and to grow us and mature us to help us become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.